All right. I am Will Fenton, the Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. For those of you who don't know the Library Company, we were founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731. Uh, we've changed a good deal over the past uh, 290 odd years. Uh, today we are an independent research library with programs in women's history, visual culture, early America, print culture, and of course, African-American history. Uh, we've had a heck of a month, uh, this Black History Month, we've had five programs, and this is our sort of final program of Black History Month, and I'm delighted to be a part of it. Um, Fireside Chats is a series that we started, oof, I started last April, uh, and we've sustained it uh, thanks to the generosity of our research fellows uh, who have volunteered to help us sustain that connection and uh, share all of their wonderful new works in progress and books and terrific projects that they're working on. All right, so with that, let me uh, jump into introductions. Today I'm joined by Dr. Derek Spires, Associate Professor of Literatures in English at Cornell University. Dr. Spires specializes in early African-American and American print culture, citizenship studies, and African-American intellectual history. His first book, the subject of tonight's talk, The Practice of Citizenship, Black Politics, and Print Culture in the Early United States, won the MLA first, excuse me, the MLA prize for, for first book, very prestigious prize, and the Bibliographical Society St. Louis Mercantile Library Prize. I would also add that it was a finalist for the library company's own first book award. His work appears in or is forthcoming in African American Review, uh, American Literary History, and edited collections on early African American print culture and the colored conventions movement. Dr. Spires was notably an Albert M. Greenfield Foundation Fellow in African American History at the Library Company in 2008, if I have the date right. Thanks so much for joining us, Derek. Thanks for having me. I speak to you from Cornell University, which is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayukona or the Kiwa Nation, the Gayukono, are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, the United States, New York State, um, and I'd add um, the Six Nations tradition is one of the models used to frame the US Constitution. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayukona dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gayukono people past, present, future to these lands and waters. Um, I also want to thank you again, Will, the library company for creating the space and for the funding and access that made this book possible. Yes, I was a fellow in 2008 and I kept coming back. So yeah, thank you. Thank you also audience members, wherever and whenever you are for tuning into this talk. Um, in the words of a many a Baptist preacher, I won't hold you long, I promise. So at its core, the practice of citizenship is about the questions and methodologies that emerge when we focus our analyses on the concerns black writers made foremost and on understanding these concerns in the terms they set forth. In 1848, Samuel Ringo Ward told a white ally who questioned the urgency of his activism, quote, had you a colored skin from October 1817 to June 1840, as I have in this pseudo republic, you would have seen through a very different medium. What does it mean to see and do citizenship through a different medium? 
What do we learn when we take Black citizens as citizens thinking seriously about and theorizing the meaning of citizenship in the United States? What happens if we shift our narrative from framing Black citizens as reacting to white supremacy and, ask, and asking for inclusion to instead think about all the ways Black citizens generate a community, assume their claims to citizenship? In fact, one of the things I learned pretty quickly was that much of US racist exclusions get developed in response to Black citizenship work. As Black Michiganders noted in 1843, you have trampled our liberties in the dust and thus standing with the iron heel of oppression upon our heads, you bid us rise to a level with yourselves. And because we do not rise, you point the finger of scorn and contempt at us and say that we are an inferior race by nature. End quote. Paritha Mitchell has given us the wonderful phrase, know your place aggression, to account for the violent reprisal Black folk face for simply acting on the assumption that they have a right to be. I have a somewhat less elegantly um, framing for this um, called inverse causality, as US federal and local institutions use policy decisions to generate the material conditions that they would then cite retroactively to justify maintaining or even increasing more exclusions. Is one of my book's implicit arguments that Black writing compels book history and print culture studies to read differently, not out of surprise that Black books and Black theories exist, but from a position that assumes there's a there there. I joined recent work by my press mate, Christopher Bonner, in observing that citizenship talk was ubiquitous in Black print. As Martha S. Jones argues in Birthright Citizens, which appeared just a few months before practice, Black people didn't wait for laws to explicitly declare them as citizens. They assumed and acted on their rights as citizens. A perusal of Dorothy Porter's early Negro writing, first published in 1971, for instance, reveals a collection of addresses on the abolition of the slave trade delivered between 1808 and 1815 that begins fathers, brethren, and fellow citizens, or simply citizens. At the same time, scholars of African-American literature and print culture have been attending to these early Negro writings for decades. Carla Peterson, Elizabeth McHenry, Francis Smith Foster, Jocelyn Moody, Miriam McGram, and others have built on Porter to give us a robust sense of the variety of collectives, including mutual aid societies, religious and fraternal organizations, newspapers, literary societies, and labor unions. The field they help define is not just about the recovery of text or troubling the canon. Rather, they are invested in creating deeper and ever more fulfilling understandings of the expressive print cultures Black communities created across time. More recently, initiatives like the Color Conventions Project, Black Bibliography Project, the Program in the History of Black Writing, and the Black Self-Publishing Initiative and others are enhancing our understanding of how robust Black print was and continues to be. These projects are teaching us that simply adding Black books to the range of objects, book history, print culture studies, American literature, African-American literature take up is woefully insufficient. Black books and Black print more broadly compel us to develop new methodologies, theoretical frameworks, and institutional structures. Understanding and learning from the wisdom and tactics articulated in Black print is a matter of life and death for democracy in the United States and for Black people, literally. Black writers argue for more than simple inclusion. Indeed, they argue for the kind of political world in which they would not have to make such an argument. 
They articulate an expansive practice-based theory of citizenship as a set of common practices, as political participation, neighborliness, critique and revolution, and the myriad daily interactions between people living in the same spaces, both physical and virtual. From Absalom Jones and Richard Allen's founding of the Free African Society on the streets of Philadelphia in 1787, the same year of the federal constitution, through Francis E.W. Har Harper's writing about anti-slavery violence in the Anglo-African magazine on the eve of the Civil War, Black citizenship theorizing rejected definitions of citizen based on who a person is or what a white supremacist state deigned to give them in favor of the definitions that grounded the active engagement in the process of creating and maintaining collectivity, whether defined as state, community, or other heading. Thinking about citizenship on these terms as practice rather than status and through a different medium allows us to see citizenship work happening in recognizable acts, such as voting, alongside less structured and unsanctioned acts, such as greeting others on the street, or as our COVID realities have demonstrated through simple gestures of mutual aid. Both kinds of work can signal membership in the political body and exclusion or refusion can become mechanisms of erasure or identifying those outside the bounds of citizens. In a recent um, interview in Ufa, executive chief officer of the New Georgia Project, talks about engaging voters through churches and other institutions, providing music, food, and childcare at all events, and speaking in terms of empowerment and ownership of the process rather than asking for permission. In each instance, 19th century and 21st century, Folks are creating new infrastructures or making new uses of existing infrastructure to practice citizenship, especially when and as official spaces continue to do harm, either actively or through neglect. Practice also highlights forms that until recently have received little attention, like the Black State and National Color Conventions, ballots by Francis Harper and others, and sketches written under pseudonyms like Ethiopian Communipaw in Black newspapers. Today, I think about how William J. Wilson imagines an African-American picture gallery in the Anglo-African magazine that really offers a prelude to the public historical and artistic work in, area, in venues such as the 1619 Project and the National Museum of African-American History. These projects remind us that citizenship practices happen as much in the library, the parlor, and the park as they do in the halls of Congress. And it's through these sites that restrictive notions of belonging can be contested in which, and in which alternate models can be theorized and practiced. So in the time I have left, I wanna take up one element of black citizenship theorizing, um, what I call in the book, pedagogies of revolutionary citizenship. That is how black writers thought about slave uprisings, communal self-defense, against kidnapping and capture and the founding of Maroon communities as models for revolutionary citizenship, how they represented them in literature and how they theorized literary representation as part of a revolutionary pedagogy that Franz Fanon describes in The Wretched of the Earth as awakening the mind, but which Francis Harper and others figure in terms of conversation through encounters with the sublime. She and others draw on local revolutionaries as Margaret Garner, the Tennessee hero, and John Brown, and the forms of anti-slavery violence Kelly Carter Jackson so elegantly chronicles in Force and Freedom, along with a broader hemispheric and biblical archive, Zumbi dos Pamales, 
Jamaica, Moses, and Naomi. She draws on these as resources for instilling a revolutionary ethos and as a, as a multimodal response to the complicated, chaotic, and dour outlook at the start of the 1860s. So allow me to introduce to some and share with others Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1825, Harper had become a fixture on the anti-slavery and reform lecture circuit by the 1850s. Her first book, Forest Leaves, recently recovered by Joanna Ortner at the American Antiquarian Society, appeared around 1846. She is perhaps still best known for her two editions of poems on miscellaneous subjects published in 1854 and expanded in 1857. Her short story, The Two Offers, published in 1859, and her post-Civil War novel, Iola Leroy, or Shadows of Uplift, published in 1892. Popularly known as the Bronze Muse, by the late 1850s, Harper gained recognition from her peers as a leading figure in anti-slavery, vigilance, moral reform, political activism, and literary production, categories that were a piece of the same project for Harper. The Anglo-African magazine illustrates her significance among the literary and activist pantheon. An ad for Harper's Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects, 1857, appears in the midst of more overtly radical texts, including William C. Nell's Colored Patriots of the American Revolution, Frederick Douglass's My Bondage and My Freedom, and accounts of the Nat Turner insurrection and the life of Captain John Brown. Much of what we currently know about Harper's work is indebted to William Steele's sketch of her life in the Underground Railroad, Francis Smith Foster's A Brighter Coming Day, and editions of Harper's serial fiction, as well as Mary Emma Graham's collected poetry of Francis Harper. So just want to thank them in addition to um, Carla Peterson and Caritha Mitchell, recent edition of Iola Leroy published with Broadview Press. So Harper didn't necessarily leave an aesthetic treatise or autobiography. Um, but she's still pretty transparent about her thinking across time. And if we read Harper across time, we can see her aesthetic sensibilities developing and shifting and changing as she uh, continues to read, continues to think, and continues to work in the world. In an, 18, in an October 20th, 1854 letter to William Steele from Temple, Maine, Harper declares her conversion to the free produce movement after reading 12 Years a Slave. Solomon Northrop's 1853 narrative of kidnapping, enslavement, and return. Quote, I spoke on free produce, Harper tells Steele, before confessing almost conspiratorially. And now, by the way, I believe in that kind of abolition. Oh, it does seem to strike at one of the principal roots of the matter. I have commenced since I read Solomon Northrop. Oh, if Miss Stowe has clothed American slavery in the graceful garb of fiction, Solomon Northrop comes up from the dark habitation of Southern cruelty where slavery fattens and feasts on human blood with such mournful revelations that one might almost wish for the sake of humanity that the tales of horror which he reveals were not so. This change in tone recognizable in Harper's post-1854 poetry to sort of shift from Stowe's graceful garb of fiction to more mournful truths also indicates a broader development in Black political discourse, which I examine in the book as the spirit of 1856. 
an explosion of rhetoric in black writing that embraced slave rebellions as the site of revolutionary citizenship, not simply in deed, but more important as sites of citizenship theorizing and a reworking of the tropes commonly associated with the 1776 American Revolution. Faced with Northrop's tales of horror, Harper delivers a critique of Harriet Beecher Stowe's sentimentalism that scholars from James Baldwin to Saidiya Hartman would refine over the next 150 years. Harper does not, like some of her contemporaries, however, criticize Stowe's immigration conclusion or her sentimental politics as such. Rather, she is more interested in how sentimentalism, particularly its emphasis on vulnerable Black bodies or individual virtues over capitalist foes, mutes the effectiveness of telling or retelling Black stories. Stowe's graceful garb remains linked too closely to luxuries drawn from reluctant fingers. It obscures giving a glimpse of enslavement, but, um, but veiling the unmentionables, the implicating private parts in a way that, as Salamisha Tillett's critique of feeling politics suggests, privileged the, effect of, privileged the affect of white sympathy over structural and symbolic justice. Graceful garb that is Eva's piety and death, Tom's forgiveness, and even the reunion of formerly enslaved characters abroad clothes enslavement in the illusion of an effective economy based on cruelty and individual avarice, hiding its underpinnings in, a, in an Atlantic world economy in, and the middle-class consumer culture that made the success of Uncle Tom's Cabin possible. One in which the book gracefully garbed and gilded on the shelf could be a sign of the proper response without any material concomitant. For Harper, 12 Years a Slave, by contrast, closes the distance between her daily practices and the material and moral economy supporting them. And through this revelation, replaces sentimentalism's emotional transfer with a materialist project. Scholars have long critiqued sentimentalism and sentimental anti-slavery in particular for erasing enslaved subjects. Harper's aesthetics, however, both explicit and modeled in poetry suggest that while sentimentalism can lead to erasure and the constellation of tears, it can also agitate, make us uneasy, provoke movement, particularly in works that bring readers to the brink and leave them there. Just as Harper begins to sympathize with Northrop, the book implicates her, not as a fellow sufferer who might identify with Northrop's loss of family, but as the enslaver, or at the very least, one of his customers. Oh, how can we pamper our appetites upon luxuries drawn from reluctant fingers? Oh, could slavery exist long if it did not sit on a commercial throne? Now confronted with her economic ties to enslaved labor, Harper cannot see commodities without also seeing the traces of their mode of production. She sees blood on cloth and whips in her sugar, an image to which she returns across the decades. More than an implicit critique of Stowe's brand of sentimentalism, at least as presented in Uncle Tom's Cabin, this moment allows Harper to develop potential reading and writing practices conducive to reproducing and disseminating this conversion. Um, this conversion invokes the godly sorrow articulated in Paul's second letter to Corinthians. For Paul, godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Where Uncle Tom's Cabin generated the sorrow of the world, leading readers to regret or even cry, the godly sorrow Harper experienced in 12 Years a Slave leads to repentance 
And repentance means a change within the self and change within the community. Now, Harper's uncle, William J. Watkins Sr., had been active in free produce in the 1830s while Harper was growing up in Baltimore. So whether or not Harper was a new convert uh, to free produce is less important here than how she narr narrates this reading experience. Her recognition of art as a vehicle for destabilizing established practices and that this kind of art was most effective in its capacity to, re to reveal but not completely bridge, indeed in its refusal to bridge the distance between the reader and the narrated subject. And Harper often stages these scenes where she happens upon a thing and sort of discovers a new um, way of being. So Harper's 1857 edition of Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects marks this shift as her poetic focus moves from the supplicating slave to the black mother in rebellion. The collection reprints poems from her 1854 edition with seven new poems following Evil's Farewell, including The Slave Mother, A Tale of Ohio, The Tennessee Hero, and Free Labor. I wanna linger with The Slave Mother, A Tale of Ohio, as a case study for Harper's shifts. The poem reenacts Margaret Garner's killing her infant daughter in 1854, voiced in part through a Garner-inspired maternal voice. Garner and her family members escaped across a frozen Ohio River into Cincinnati, Ohio in January, 1856. When slave catchers tracked them down and surrounded their refuge, Garner refused to hand over her daughter as a new asset, presenting instead a bloody knife and a corpse. The poem is remarkable for the way it simultaneously works through and resists the call for sentimental identification common in anti-slavery poetry. The differences between this poem about a slave mother and prose and those appearing in Harper's 1854 collection are worth thinking over. Compare 1857's The Slave Mother to 1854's The Slave Mother a more generic poem, relatively speaking, recounting a familiar scene of a mother's despair as she is separated from her children during a slave auction. The 1854 slave mother speaker reconstructs the sounds, sights, and emotions as a mother watches her son sold away. Her Jew that shrieked, it rose so wildly in the air, it seemed, that it's, it, it seemed as if a burdened heart was breaking in despair. The opening calls on readers to pay attention to the sights and sounds they might hear every day, but to which they have given little heed. The poem plays on common sentimental tropes of a mother losing a child, typically to death or other tragedy. Anti-slavery poets use this trope of loss as an effect, as a bridge through which readers by the end of the poem might identify with the enslaved mother's humanity. Do not marvel at these bitter shrieks. Any mother would, that would react similarly. The ballad stanzas propel us forward in a sing-song, even as Harper uses Caesura's and enjambment to manipulate the pacing. Do we pause after the first question or do we run through it? She is a mother, the poem repeats in a mantra-like plea. Other earlier poems, including Eliza Harris and the Slave Auction, follow this classic sentimental pattern, asking readers to see enslavement's horrors of and feel sympathy with enslaved subjects. The slave mother, Attell of Ohio, shifts focus from the reader's experience of the heartbreak of a sale to Garner's judging voice 
and her con contemplation of her soon to be dead daughter's innocence. It refuses the enslaved body as an object in favor of a black woman's voice and actions. The 1854 poems bowed and feebled head, the shuddering of a, the, that fragile form gives way to an accusing eye. I have before the treasures of my soul and active hands that do a deed for freedom. The poem does not simply show a woman reacting seemingly out of instinct. It creates room and a more meditative iambic tetrameter for her to narrate her calculated decision with authority and out of full knowledge of her child's potential future enslaved. Where the speakers of Harper's 1854 poems ask readers to hear and feel Harper's 1857 slave mother herself theorizes her position as a fugitive between enslavement and freedom. When a narrative voice does emerge in the slave mother, a tale of Ohio, it does so less to explain than to amplify, challenge, and chastise. Since this deed of fearful daring through my country's heart no thrill, do the icy hands of slavery every pure emotion chill, the lines dare readers to contemplate the mother's logic and its implications. The poem, the poem's title suggests Harper is in a craft conversation with herself. Both appear in the 1857 edition of her poems and read together, they suggest that both women might be the same type of person that the wordless sounds issued from the suffering mother made fresh flesh in 1854, if approached from a different angle, might be, delivered, might be delivering a similar message. In this vein, the 1857 slave mother shows Harper moving beyond dominant anti-slavery sentimentalism, even as she works through its familiar terrain. Harper saw the word literary and spoken as capable of disrupting the distribution of the sensible, that is our understanding of the world and of suggesting new configurations invoking Garner's voice rather than her body and privileging her call to justice rather than appealing to readers' judgments, Harper uses sentimentalism not to bridge an experiential gap, but rather to expose it, the gap between freedom and enslavement, love and loss, superstructure and base, theory and practice, word and deed. And by drawing attention to sympathy's limits, she affirms her reader's capacity for right feeling even as she challenges them to recognize that this feeling is insufficient or even beside the point. To be clear, the 1857 poems were radical in their own right. Part of what I wanna point out here, however, is how focusing on the enslaved mother and rebellion, even if that rebellion entails the refusal of identification rather than or in addition to enslaved, the enslaved mother and suffering, open new intellectual possibilities and that we can look at the mid 1850s um, as a moment of shifting from one register to the other. Indeed, Harper becomes an expert at the both and of representing strong emotional identification while refusing to allow identification to become substitution. It's both poetic craft and an ethics of reading. Harper's writing in the Anglo-African magazine represents a concentrated effort to theorize the mechanisms for her own conversion experience. That is, in 1854, when she writes to William Steele, she sort of articulates her feelings of this, convert, this conversion. By 1859, when she's writing for the Anglo-African magazine, she's trying to, to narrativize this conversion in fiction as a kind of vector for her readers. 
The Anglo-African magazine founded in 1859 by Thomas Hamilton was an ideal venue for this thinking, not necessarily because of its actual readership, but rather because of the mission its founder set for to address, write, and speak to Anglo-Africans. Harper follows through on this call with sketches that telegraph how fearless truth-telling to those in power and against popular opinion um, and storytelling can animate listeners to shift from idle spectatorship, spectatorship to active work. Harper's fancy sketches first appeared in the November 1859 issue of the Anglo-African magazine and appeared regularly until the magazine's final issue in March 1860. The fancy sketches series entered critical conversation thanks largely to Carla Peterson. There were five installments of fancy sketches in all. And the first was set just before a wedding reception in the city. The rest is set in Jane or Jane Rustic's aunt's country home, which also functions as a boarding house and introduces readers to an array of characters, including Jane, the narrator, uh, Melissa, who's Jane's cousin, um, Miranda, Jane's cousin, Mr. Ballard, a potential suitor for Miranda, and a rotating set of boarders and extended family. If Harper was so active on the lecture circuit and in vigilant communities, why did she place Jane in a parlor? Why have this country setting of conversation rather than street action? Um, as Francis Smith Foster suggests, appreciating Harper means understanding how she played her audience, used her poetry and prose to strike a chord of sentiment on the one hand, and attending to synergistic political aesthetics at work across her prose and poetry on the other. The synergy, to continue Foster's metaphor, suggests that Harper played form and genre the way Ella Fitzgerald worked the great American songbook. She took advantage of the forms in ha at hand, including sketches of parlor conversation to get her message through. The setting, moreover, provides a backdrop for observing a cross-section of free black life, while Harper uses the conceit of parlor conversation to overlay Atlantic world history as characters read the history of Quilombo dos Palmares, a 17th century Brazilian Maroon Republic with the sectional crisis and revolt. It draws on circulatory senses of citizenship developed in the color conventions, which themselves recognized and relied on parlors and other gendered spaces as crucial to citizenship practices. Indeed, Harper's sketches reveal that parlor spaces can generate and reproduce models of engagement that might operate more effectively and more freely than those imagined through more explicitly political and masculinist fora such as conventions. Fancy Sketches draws this practice out most explicitly over two installments centering on the narrative of Pamales its leader, and its leader, Zumbi. Harper introduces the narrative of Zumbi, or as it's spelled in 1859 and 1860, Zombie with an O, in Zombie or Fancy Sketches, published in February 1860, as part of a conversation about Negro courage and education between Jane, Jane's cousin Miranda, and Mr. Ballard. Ballard. Zombie, however, was not a new figure for Harper. It's a well-known story in Brazil and was often cited in 18th and 19th century histories and later anti-slavery tracts. And Harper's 1857 Zumbi poem, Death of Zombie, shows Harper developing what Monica Dale Callahan notes as a mythology of Black resistance and a transnational literary vision. 
In fantasy sketches, however, in, this, in the fictional space, Ballard offers to read a prose version of Zombie as an example of the stories to be told to children in preparation for what is to come. And his telling follows the standard 19th century pattern. After helping the Portuguese defeat the Dutch, explains Ballard, the former slaves refused to lay aside the implements of war for the badges of slavery and constituted a nation under the name of Pamares. The society prospered for almost 100 years, growing to over 20,000. When Portuguese armies finally attacked them, Zumbi and his compatriots held them off until their ammunition and provisions ran out and Portuguese reinforcements arrived. While many of Pamares' citizens were captured and re-enslaved, the nation's leaders resolved not to be taken alive and instead leapt to their deaths. Zombie points to the thrillingly sublime courage of those who fought against enslavement as models, not only for Negro courage, but also for citizenship. Pamales was after all a Republic. The examples Jane and Ballard produce, including martyred Tennessee heroes, Margaret Garner, Toussaint Louverture, Denmark Vesey, and Nathaniel Turner provide the ethical center of Harper's narrative landscape. Harper's invocation of the sublime throughout fancy sketches, especially in reference to anti-slavery violence, functions as more than a superlative. Rather, it provides a key to her political aesthetic. Importantly, Ballard reads Zombie as a narrative circulating through print and intended for collective consumption and primed to incite reenactment, or to use Harper's phrasing, agitation and conversation. As if to model this process, Ballard's reading of Zombie initiates a sublime response for Jane's cousin, Miranda. The narrative stirs Miranda's soul so that she vows to be an active worker and not an idle spectator. Agitation leads to overcoming and an expanded capacity to resist and act in the world against what once appeared to be an insurmountable power. While neither the narrative nor this analysis equates, equates Miranda's newly discovered resolve to physical resistance, the narratives do place before, before her monumental moments that, as with Harper's account of her response to 12 years of slave, lead Miranda to expand her imagination of the possible in the face of the ostensibly un unassailable force of whiteness. This is necessary preparatory work. Poetry is not a luxury, as Audre Lorde reminds us. Both Jane and Ballard suggest that the circulation of such narratives in conversations and in print could contribute not only towards an immediate, not towards an immediate uprising, but rather towards the gradual uprising and improvement of the masses. It is important then that Jane does not respond to Miranda's desire to do something with a call to march on the South. As she and she resists the urge to replay the bombastic conversations she critiques in earlier installments. She instead draws our attention to something more mundane and, and at least on the face of it far removed from Palmares or even US fugitives. Quote, now I tell you, Miranda, one thing you can do, we can do with ourselves and try and enlist others in the same work. And that is to try to sustain the Anglo-African that is the Anglo-African magazine. I want the Anglo-African to live at least as one of our monuments. I would like to see that book bound in the house of our people and kept in existence as something to stimulate our young people to an interest in their improvement and progress. 
While Miranda's inspiration might come from this distant narrative, her work must start with the local. Aside from the explicit plug for the struggling Anglo-African magazine, which Harper sprinkles through several fancy sketches and songs, the passage configures the parlor as a space for cultivating a revolutionary consciousness. Receiving the Anglo-African as a gift book, which was advertised in multiple weeklies and in the, 18, in the, in, in the December 1859 issue of the Anglo-African magazine, adds to Jane's small library, which contains or perhaps binds the word to a project of people building as a monument to and living agent in the creation of an Anglo-African America, starting with childhood education. We can read Jane's small library then as a generative node of revolutionary citizenship that maintains the force of the slave sublime through print and oral traditions. Having the Anglo-African on display, having conversations about what it, is, what it is and means is as important as its content. At the same time, the sketch demonstrate how black citizens can engage these questions collectively. The entire scene works to foster the mode of reading and responding characteristic of critical citizenship rather than idle spectatorship. As a part of the fabric of everyday life in the parlor conversations among friends and potential lovers, stories passed on as precious gifts and the foundation that would support all other pursuits. Um, and so I'll leave you here and with the final sort of hopeful note as we think about libraries and, and the Library Company of Philadelphia and what's on our own shelves or Kindles or IMAX or whatever. Um, to the extent that the practice of citizenship tells a story, is a story about the tension between Black citizens' creative struggle for a just society. It is those stories that Harper likes to tell in her parlor scenes, set against an ongoing national predilection to foreclose such possibilities through increasingly restrictive and violent legal and social practices. The continued pressure of such a volatile landscape forced Black theorists to rethink and rearticulate their relation to the state continually resulting in a body of literature that offers some of the most incisive analyses of citizenship available today. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Derek. And um, for all of you, uh, please join the conversation uh, using the Q&A thread. I'm gonna get us kicked off with a sort of inchoate question that I hope you'll forgive, Derek. Thinking about where you sort of brought us towards the end, um, that, that, that reference to the Anglo-African, that magazine as a monument that actually promotes this kind of revolutionary consciousness. I think that that, that really brings us back to um, how important a site for revolutionary citizenship black print culture is. And you've certainly done a great job, you know, sort of exploring how the aesthetics of that black print culture uh, challenge the sort of idle uh, spectatorship of sentimental fiction like Harry Beecher Stowe, which everybody tends to read. I'm curious to know, given that this is an important site uh, for articulating and enacting citizenship, is Black print culture structurally different from the sort of print cultures that otherwise circulate? I mean, are we talking about how does it differ in terms of its, its production, its dissemination, its circulation of texts? On a very basic level, I'm not sure it's all that different. Um, in the same way that on a very basic level, Black Twitter isn't all that different from Twitter. It's the people who sort of, the people are using the technologies at hand 
and developing cultures that may do something different, but the technology itself is similar. Uh, now, with that said, I'll say that uh, what you see in black print are a few innovations and um, riffs on what's happening around, around them. And I'll also say that um, what you see coming out of black print and black activism is a template that movements like the American Anti-Slavery Society will draw on and pick up on. So for instance, the color convention movement starts before the American Anti-Slavery Society starts. And that movement itself um, helped use the word convert folks like William Lloyd Garrison who were more colonizationist leaning, right? And so on the one hand, I'm saying that black print culture on a very basic level is using the same sorts of infrastructures that the broader print culture is using. And at the same time, I'm also resisting the urge to separate the two out per se. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'd note though, um, is that you take something like Frederick Douglass's paper, right? It is a newspaper. He is assuming the chair editorial, which is James McCune Smith would say, editors are the rulers of the day, right? Um, and Douglas wanted that newspaper to visually represent something different. It's named Frederick Douglass's paper, his name, not sort of the New York Tribune or the Liberator or the anti-slavery standard, et cetera. He wanted the paper to be expressly white. He wanted the print to be dark, right? And within that space that he's cultivating, you see people innovating on something that had been around for at least a few centuries that's writing on a pseudonym, pseudonymous correspondences. Carla Peterson has a nice article in ALH on sort of drawing a lineage from Addison and Steele right through Frederick Douglass's mm -hmm. paper. But what folks like William J. Wilson and James McCune Smith and Mary Frances Vashon Coder do is sort of heighten what's already there to a different level in the way that, again, um, the space known as Black Twitter heightens what's already there in Twitter to this other level. Mm -hmm. That's great. I have a question. Uh, well, first a comment and then a question from Deirdre Lynch. Uh, first, she uh, thanks you for an amazing talk and also an amazing book. Um, and I dropped a link to um, where you folks can, can find that book if you're interested in, in picking up a copy. Then she follows up, what is the first step that book history might take to better acknowledge the methodological challenge Black writing poses? It's a complicated question in part because Black intellectuals have been doing book history for years. So Dorothy Porter, for instance, one answer might be go back and read Dorothy Porter's early Negro writing essay published in 1945 in the papers of the Bibliographical Society, um, where she outlined something very similar to what I just talked about, what changes when we uh, shift our methods, in her case, cataloging and archiving to attend to the terms and the concepts that Black writers, Black activists, Black print networks um, found important. Uh, and Laura Helton's done great work. Zita Nunez has done great work on the way to Porter. Um, again, back to this question about sort of print culture, right? taking the structures that are there and innovating on them when it comes to card catalogs. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing I'd say is that our citational practices need to improve. Mm. Um, and so there's 
this is something I experienced as a graduate student. There are the people doing African American literature and what would become African American print culture. Um, and they were citing all the things. But then there's American literature and American print culture. And while they're getting cited by the folks who are doing African American print culture, they're not necessarily reading the folks who are doing African American print culture. And so that citational practice that citational practice needs to stop. Um, and so you have various sort of calls to do this, like cite black women, for instance, where you need to, where we intentionally look at our bibliographies and our citational practices and think about all of the discourses that are missing and then actively seek those out rather than getting into a kind of citational feedback loop. Then mm. the third thing I'd say is we have to just stop assuming that like. Um, there's nothing there. Right? Instead of, well, I haven't seen um, sort of a robust discussion in Black print about aesthetics, therefore it's not there. Instead, okay, where is this discussion happen, happening? And then go look for it. That's a really well-made point. And um, I would note that we have a number of academic humanists tuned in right now. And um, I wonder if you might have any recommendations for you know, smaller collegial conferences that are good contact points. Um, have, a, have a, you attended a particularly um, a useful academic conference that sort of puts different communities into conversation? I found regional um, MLAs really great spaces for this. And one space in particular is the Civil War Caucus that for years has been running out of the Midwest MLA and it's now expanded to the American Literature Association. But those regional MLAs have a kind of flexibility that allow you to create um, sort of streams in some ways. So that's one, one smaller space. I think about some of the symposia that have happened across time in the summers at places like the library company. So one of my first experiences was the early African-American print culture symposium mm. that um, the library company and the McNeil Center put on, um, host, uh, organized by Laura Cohen and Jordan Stein. So those are two things that come to mind immediately. I also um, think that any collective can leverage larger conferences to their own purposes. So a few years ago, there are a few folks who put together Harper panels, Harper themed panels at SSAWW. Um, and so there are at least two or three Harper, Francis Harper panels at SSAWW. Some of the organizers of the SEA conference, um, I think some of them might be in the audience, Bridget Fielder, Tara Bynum, Sander Smith, have organized really great work around uh, Phyllis Wheatley. Um, so that's another thing that happens. So those are the things that come to mind. But I really do want to note the, those regional conferences. That's great. Um, and for those of you who are sort of just interested in this, this, this interesting little subset of academic humanities, um, Society of Early Americanists actually has another conference coming up next week. Uh, so um, I would encourage you to take advantage of its online presence. Um, I don't see any other immediate questions, which puts me in a place. And uh, incidentally, Bridget Fielder, uh, thanks you for the shout out. <laughs> but it, uh, 
it gives me space to ask another question that I had. I love this idea that um, these African-American actors weren't reacting to white supremacy when they were envisioning their own citizenship, that it was envisioned independent of white supremacy. And I wanna sort of take that on its head. Was there anything then that these white supremacist backlashes try to take from that kind of black citizenship? It, it happened in Pennsylvania. Really? Um, so when Pennsylvania framed its state constitution, it did not have a racial restriction for voting. It's just inhabitants of the state could vote. And so there's a history of black voting in the state of Pennsylvania in places like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and elsewhere. I can't say that it's strong, but it's there. Right. Um, but in 1837-38, state of Pennsylvania revises its state's constitution. And this is sort of the culmination of a few years of legal challenges and um, riots and other things um, in which the state of Pennsylvania, when they reframed their constitution in 1838, expressly restrict voting to white men. They write the word right white in there. And they have a debate about it. And if you read the minutes of the state constitutional convention, you can see that debate play out. And you can also see a debate around a memorial that gets sent to the state constitutional convention from black citizens in Pittsburgh protesting it. And that memorial includes statistical data, tax data, uh, and the argument that black citizens in the state are as strong as, if not stronger than their white counterparts. And so within that state constitutional convention is yet another debate about what to do with this document. Should we read it into the record? Should we send it to the committee? And there is a kind of almost implosion um, because all the racist arguments, like one, someone argues that um, African descendant people are suffering from the curse of ham and that gets laughed out of the hall. <laughs> and so you can see this development of race discourse as the state of Pennsylvania eventually disenfranchises Black Pennsylvanians. Things are moving backwards rather than forward. Hmm. We only have a few minutes left, uh, but I do want to see if I can get in one more question here. Actually, first a comment, then a question. Regina Robinson, thanks you for an excellent presentation. I think we can all echo that sentiment. We also have a question from Emily Harrington. Uh, she asked, would you talk about Black poetics in the um, 19th century the same way that you talk about Black print culture or even Black Twitter? Do you see Black poets using techniques um, alongside white poetics, or are they using these techniques in a different way? You know, like sort of rhetorical techniques like prosody and whatnot. Yeah, I think it's both and, and Harper is a great case study in this. And one of the reasons that Harper falls out of favor in the criticism in the 20th century is because she's writing in the ballot form. And it's not just an African-American literary criticism. It, poetry, the ballot, popular forms like the ballot were discounted in general. Uh, and so she's using the ballot form, she's using the hymn form, she even innovates on the long narrative poem um, in ways that are right in line with contemporaneous poetics. And at the same time, and Ivy Wilson writes really well about this, Inspectors of Democracy, there's a kind of uh, attention to voice that you see in Harper, attention to rhythm that you see in Harper that you don't necessarily see in her contemporaries. 
So even the slave mother from 1854 that I, that I use that to contrast the sort of shift she makes by 1857, like even that opening line, heard you that shriek, it rose, that question in there interrupting it is like a clarion call. This isn't gonna be your typical ballad. I'm gonna freeze you before we could even get started in the rhythm. And then the rhythm goes, right? So even there, she's using the M dash. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when I'm teaching these things, um, Emily Dickinson gets a lot of uh, attention for M dashes and commas and such. But when you look at Harper, Harper's writing around the same time, but publishing before Dickinson. And here she is doing these interesting um, poetic things with the lines. Wonderful. Well, we're just about out of time. So I want to close with one last comment. David Organ writes, thank you for your essential academic work for recentering reading and writing in the life of American and African-American citizenship at this historical moment. So thank you, Derek. And thank you thank all you. of you for um, setting aside a little bit of your Thursday evening to join us. If you're excited about this talk and you want to join again, we actually have Derek coming back to join us for a roundtable with Penn Press in April. I think it's mid-April. We'll have uh, Derek and uh, Lindsay Dukerke uh, talking about their volumes that were both recently published by Penn Press. So I hope you'll all join us. And in the meantime, um, keep on coming to these fireside chats. I love having company here. Take care all. Thanks everyone. Thanks.